He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. We have Steve Case, a doctor's guy. What's going up on on the skies? Dr. Peter Michalos, how are we going to live longer? Mario Economo, what's going on in Europe? And Larry Kudlow, the economy, what's going on in America and what's going to happen to interest rates? We have also Avi Loeb, a Harvard professor that thinks he might have found some alien remnants from uh, a space crash in 2014. Let's start with Admiral Stavridis, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO for four years. There's nobody that knows uh, what's going on better than him. Let's start with Admiral Stavridis. What is today is Admiral James Stavridis. He was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO for four years. He's a retired four-star admiral in the Navy. And now he's Vice Chairman of Global Affairs for the Carlisle Group, Chairman of the Board of Trustees for the Rockefeller Foundation. He must be one trusted person. Admiral, I'm proud to call you a friend. It is my honor to be your friend, John Katsimatidis. What a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Admiral, there's so many problems in the world. Uh, where should we start off this morning? I think we should start with Ukraine because people are probably wondering, John, about the Krogosian Rebellion. And this happened, as we know, about 10 days ago. And this is a very dangerous man named Yevgeny Krogosian, who is the head of the Wagner Group, uh, a global mercenary firm that has killed tens of thousands of people in Africa, in the Middle East, and most recently in Ukraine. So 10 days ago, Yevgeny Prigozhin evidently rebelled against Vladimir Putin and led a charge of Wagner troops north from southern Russia toward Moscow. And he got within 125 miles of Moscow. So this would be though rebels came flowing out of Florida, drove up Highway 95, and we're finally stopped at Richmond, just over 100 miles from the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C. So this rebellion becomes a backdrop, and as suddenly as it began, it stops. Um, a deal is cut by the president of Belarus. Prigozhin agrees to go into exile in Belarus. Minsk is the city. And we think, okay, that is the end of this. Now we come to the present, John, and two days ago we hear that Prigozhin, according to Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, Prigozhin is now back in Russia. Maybe he's in Moscow. Maybe he's in St. Petersburg. So the big question that Russia watchers are dealing with today is whether Vladimir Putin will bring back Evgeny Prigozhin, bring this vile creature back and pull him toward him again in order to regain control of these Wagner troops, or, equally plausibly, 
Prigozhin could be there for interrogation, trial, imprisonment, or even execution. So, John, we just don't know. And it is an indication, I'll close with this, it's an indication that Vladimir Putin's hold on power, which looked very firm six months ago, now looks a bit shakier. The, the intelligence I had is uh, he never went to uh, Belarus. Uh, none of his troops ever went to Belarus. That's an open point. And he could not take over Moscow with a mere eight to 10,000 people. Maybe uh, the, the other possibility was that Putin was uh, waiting to see which of his generals hmm. might uh, tag in with him. John, I think you're on the right track because what often happens in these crisis situations, people get very careless about what they say on their cell phone, who they call, what they do with their personal finances. Um, many of these oligarchs who Putin might have thought would be loyal to him were jumping in their private jets and blowing out of Moscow as fast as they could. So you are absolutely correct. Uh, Putin has used this Prigozhin rebellion to target not just the generals, but the oligarchs who are really the economic drivers in this society. I think Putin has refined his enemies list, and you're going to see one after another after another pulled into Laporto prison, the main prison in Moscow for interrogation, stripping of their assets, um, ultimately punishments, perhaps some executions. Uh, all of that will be how Putin responds to these events. But the mystery, John, remains of Prigozhin. I think we'll know more in a few weeks. One to watch in this, if you're watching this situation, watch the status of the Russian Minister of Defense, a man named Schweigu. He is a deep enemy of Prigozhin. And if you see Schweigu fall and be repressed himself, it means Prigozhin is on the rise. If Schweigu stays in power, I think things look much worse for Yevgeny Prigozhin going forward. Now, where where does Ukraine stand? I mean, I understand mm -hmm. President Biden has authorized custom bombs to, mm -hmm. to go over there in the last couple of days. Is the war continuing? It, it sounds to me like the, the people are suffering a great deal on, on all of us. Indeed, John, you're right. And I often say there are really two wars in Ukraine. One is the land war, which the Ukrainians are on the front foot. They are in the process of cranking up what I think will be a big offensive. Uh, watch for that to develop over the next uh, few weeks, next month or two, really bringing all these tanks and armor that have been provided by the West to bear on this long Russian front line. So that land war, I think, continues to trend toward the Ukrainians. I think it's a smart move on the part of the U.S. to provide the cluster munitions that can help unlock that offensive going forward. That's the land war. John, the other war is the air war. Here, the Russians are on the front foot. And to your point, this is why the Ukrainian people are suffering so grievously. It's because Putin has more or less command of the air. He can launch cruise missiles. He can send manned bomber aircraft in. He takes some losses. The Ukrainians shoot down a fair amount. On the other hand, many of these 
cruise missiles and bombs are killing civilians. They're used indiscriminately to target civilian population centers. So that air war, my view, is where the administration should step up and provide F-16s. They are authorizing training, but the next logical step is to bring that F-16 fighting falcon, it's called, uh, to the battlefield, to the skies over Ukraine. I think that would help the Ukrainians in this second war that's going on. And by the way, it would have a very strong effect on the ground war because that F-16 can not only do air-to-air combat, it can also be very effective in air-to-ground attacking troops, military formations. So time for the administration to really lean in on the F-16. Admiral, me and you have spoken a lot about uh, uh, China, a lot about Taiwan, a lot about the conflicts. Our Secretary of State made a visit uh, last week. Is there any update with China? I mean, what what, what is happening there? Is there a hope for peace? Let me, let me start with a bit of bad news, which was the announcement a couple of weeks ago, or I should say the revelation a couple of weeks ago, that China is going to construct a brand new, very capable espionage facility in Cuba. That's 100 miles from Florida. And as you and I both know, John, Florida has the largest concentration of military power, particularly high-end command and control, of any state in the Union. Three of our nine combatant commands, the leaders of our military forces, are in Florida. That is the Special Operations Command in Tampa, its sister command, the Central Command in charge of all of the Middle East, and a command I used to hold, uh, U.S. Southern Command, all military activities south of the United States. That's in Doral, Florida. As well, we have very advanced acoustic test ranges, flight ranges in the panhandle of Florida. It's a target-rich environment for espionage. So the fact that China is working with Cuba to build up a significant espionage activity there does not bode well. That's kind of the bad news. Here's your point, John, and it's a good one. Um, There has been good news on the U.S.-China front in the past week. And you're correct. It's not only the visit a couple weeks ago now, or Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, but Janet Yellen, our Secretary of the Treasury. We've also learned directly the CIA. Bill Burns, himself a former ambassador, has been in touch with China. That's good for U.S.-China relations. But, again, my question is, where is the military-to-military contact between U.S. and China? Our Secretary of Defense can't get his calls returned from Beijing. Our Chairman of the Joint Chiefs has not spoken to his counterpart in years. Um, There's no hotline between Beijing and Moscow for military. That's what I worry about, John, is an unintended incident in the South China Sea between ships and aircraft of the two nations and no way to defuse it because there's no military-to-military contact. So, yes, it's good, but we need more contact at the military level. We have about 30 seconds left. The White House, uh, ever since we changed chief of staff in the White House, it seems a a little bit more common sense and more moderate. Have you seen that? Uh, Well, I know uh, the new chief of staff very well. I've worked with him over the years, Jeff Seinz, and I am uh, 
very impressed with everything he does. Um, he's very low-key, stays out of the limelight, and I think takes a very pragmatic approach. So uh, I would say that we have a, a good chief of staff in the White House in these turbulent times. Admiral, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you for everything you've done for our country and continue to speak out for our country. Let us know about your books. I will. Coming up in March, the next one is 2052 about artificial intelligence and war. 2054 is the title. Wow. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. What is today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, to tell us what the heck is going on out there in the yonder. Steve Cates, welcome to Sunday morning. What interesting stories do you have for us today? Well, good morning, John. Always jam-packed information here as we welcome all you and your listeners on this Sunday morning. It's been reported by the news services around the world, hopefully they're credible in this case, talking about the hottest day ever on Earth since 1979, and some in this particular article claim over 125,000 years. What's the story? According to the U.S. National Centers for Environmental Protection, they're saying that the average global temperature reached on July 4th, 62.92 degrees Fahrenheit. That beats the old number of 62.46 degrees Fahrenheit. And they're blaming it on a return of El Nino, which John, as many people may not know, traps heat into the Earth's atmosphere. But 57 million people are still under this dangerous heat that began just before July the 4th. But it's interesting because we don't really know what the true story is here. And I always have some skeptical uh, analysis on this. As a science person, I've always talked about the fact that volcanoes seem to admit so much carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere over the millennia. But according to other sources, they say that human CO2 production is 60 times that of what volcanoes produce. But remember, volcanoes produce sulfur dioxide, which also lingers in the atmosphere. So yes, John, uh, it is getting warmer, but do we really know the real culprit? And so many people are just so dead set on saying that it's the human side. What say you about this? Because it's quite controversial. Well, I mean, the sun had a few interesting uh, moments the last few months. They had sunbursts. What did you tell us what they had? Well, the sun is going through cycle 25, John, and what's that? This sunspot cycle is producing more solar flares. Just a few days ago, we had what's called an X1 solar flare. That's the highest level if you're looking at like 1 through 10. You're talking about something that's up in the 8 and 9 category on the all-time high. So the sun is pouring out so many protons, so much energy as we go through this solar cycle. But going back to the temperature change here, you know, if you didn't study this, and we all, of course, want to, many people are just so simply able to believe that it's just human cause. And of course, nobody wants to pollute. But the reality is there's so much that we don't know, John, about the solar cycles, about how they affect the Earth. But I'm interested in even discussing more about these volcanoes, because we had one back in 2022 in January called the Hunga Tonga Submarine Volcano, hard to say twice where it literally detonated an explosion from under the ocean that was over a 10 megaton effect as if it was a nuclear bomb. But that sent shockwaves around the Earth, disrupted satellites, and even today put so much uh, debris, if we want to call it, up into the atmosphere. So again, this is a very controversial subject because the UN says that they want to keep that temperature rise at least no higher than 1.5 degrees centigrade over a measured period of time. So the bottom line, John, is I don't think we really know, and I hope that people are open to debate on this subject, 
Because unfortunately, in today's world, you and I both agree that the art of debate is becoming demonized. Just because somebody doesn't believe one side, they should still have the ability to express their opinion. Correct? Correct. And everybody should keep an open mind because there's a lot of moving objects. And whether it's the sun causing it or whether it's mm -hmm. the earth causing it, our creator, whoever created us, whoever created our planet, I think they have a lot of checks and balances built in. Absolutely. And the story goes on. But, John, if we now move out into the deep part of the cosmos, let's go 10 billion light years away. Astronomers are saying that they found a dormant black hole, which mysteriously came alive. Now, I find that amazing because black holes, as we know, nothing escapes. All radiation, energy, and heat gets pulled into it. So here's this object with a fancy name. It's called J221951. It's a black hole 10 billion light years away, and they're starting to notice that it's flaring up in certain regions of the black hole as if they can see it. What's probably causing it? Well, they're thinking that stars, actually, they eat stars, these supermassive black holes. And when one gets too close to the outer edge of the black hole, they call it an accretion disk. They're saying that this could be the cause, and they have a new term now for this phenomenon. So if a star gets eaten by a black hole, they're calling it a kilo nova, which is really off the charts. So as we explore the universe, John, every day, I mean, look how many stories we see both on the Internet and on the mainstream media. There's so many stories filling our minds. And the whole purpose, what, is to keep our minds open and expand them. But here's one we call the mystery and, of the week. And I, I tell you, I, I think I have so many facts going through my mind. I feel yeah. like my brain's going to explode one of these days. <laughs> well, what else for this Sunday morning? Well, John, we always go to the mystery of the week. And here's one that's really strange. UFO researcher in Italy, Roberto Pignati, he claims that in discussions with high-level Italian military individuals, he claims that back, their story is, back on June 13, 1933, there was a crash and a recovery of an unidentified object, meaning a UFO, like a spacecraft, in an area near Milan known as the city of Magenta. And he has all these documents that were passed on to him from previous people who wanted to keep this ultra-secret. And the story goes on. It says that this project in Italy called RS-33 was trying to be, you know, kept so secret that even get a load of this. Benito Mussolini got involved in this, as they say in this document, whether true or not. So it wasn't Truman that was the first president or first high-level individual like he got involved allegedly with Roswell. But that John, even the Vatican got involved in this. And the end story is that the U.S. military actually recovered this particular craft. So how many of these craft uh, alleged recoveries do we have, John? The story goes on. More and more people are telling us this. But John, we need the proof, as you know. Uh, absolutely. And whether it's Roswell, whether it's Venezuela or uh, Peru, I mean, one of these days we're going to find out the truth. What did you hear? Have you heard anything about the rover on mars is back on the move again well john this is interesting the perseverance rover just on june the 23rd took a most incredible image it actually imaged what's something that looks like a rock with a hole in it like a donut lying on the surface of mars and upon further inspection the astronomers and space scientists they're only guessing but they're pretty good at guessing they think it's actually re remnants of a meteorite that crashed on the surface of mars but if we go to the other side of the equation who knows maybe it's a remnant of something that we have no idea what it is because the rover obviously can't do too much to it it can look at it take pictures of it maybe nudge it but more than likely, from the astronomy side, I think it's a remnant of an asteroid, and somehow it got a hole burned into the center of it. But these, these asteroids, John, and these meteorites, they, they dominate the world. But remember, on Mars, the surface gravity is way less than that of the Earth, 
So the probability of more of these meteorites on the surface of Mars, they probably lie in a higher percentile than they do here on the Earth because Mars is thin atmosphere, which is really amazing. But John, we always end off with what people can actually see in the sky. And as we move into summer, don't forget, this is a season for satellites and you can go out any clear night. And if you go to this website, heavens-above.com, we love it. You can find the times wherever you live, plug your city in. You can see the ISS, the space station, the Chinese space station, the Hubble Space telescope. And here's a final treat. If you look into the east-southeast on a clear night as the moon starts to fade away, no moonlight. There are three stars called the Summer Triangle. They have the star Vega, the star Altair, and the star Deneb. And you can actually see it on a star chart. And it's beautiful, John, because it's a symbolic time for summer. A time for what? To refresh our minds, to re-energize our bodies. And as we always say on your show, expand people's minds as they hopefully go to wabcradio.com for more from our Dr. Sky experience. Always a privilege and honor, John, being with you on the Cats Roundtable on Sunday mornings. Well, thank you, Steve Cates, and look forward to catching up again real soon. And hopefully we'll find out someday what the truth is, and I really look forward to that day. Thank you. We'll keep on pursuing that topic, John, to try to get answers. Have a good one. God bless. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. Don't send me no doctor. Filling me up with all of those pills. With us today is Dr. Peter Mihalos, who is our in-house medical expert, historian, in-house genius. Dr. Peter Mihalos, what are we going to talk about this Sunday morning to make us live longer? Well, today we're going to talk about exciting news that's happening in the world of anti-aging and that we're finally learning that anti-aging is going to be a real field and aging is a disease and that most things that happen to us as we get older happen to us with aging. So if we can figure out how to tackle aging, that's going to be a big plus for all of us and future treatments. A big European Union study was done and figured out what the mechanism of aging is. And one of the things they observed is that when we are making copies of our uh, are basically our amino acids that make our proteins from DNA into RNA, they found that the copying machine goes much faster. When the copying machine goes faster, it makes a lot of error. Aging being error in the copying. And what they're finding out now and understanding is what speeds up the copy machine. And they're finding that elevated insulin levels speed up the copying machine. Blood now, sugar what being do you chronically mean elevated. Elevated insulin levels. In other words, if you have too much sugar and your body right. produces yeah. insulin to fix that problem, is that right. what it means? Yeah, because you keep putting out insulin because insulin is a growth hormone. Insulin takes and carries sugars like a taxi cab and brings it into muscle cells. When there's no more room there, it brings it into fat cells and it fills them up like a refrigerator, like let's get ready for winter, let's get ready for a famine. And that's what happens. And then eventually you keep pumping out that insulin. And like everything else, if you do too much, it doesn't work anymore. And it's called insulin resistance. And now, but what, what, what really is important to note is that those high insulin levels can now be measured. And you can find out when your insulin levels are high, you age faster. And when your insulin levels are high, you can have normal blood sugar levels, but you keep putting out insulin so it makes it look like your glucose or sugar levels normal. But meanwhile, you have very high insulin levels. And that has been shown to speed up that copying machine aging clock. And that's why it explains why 
intermittent fasting, and while our gut rests, when the insulin levels are low, you don't age as fast. That's why the Mediterranean diet has a low glycemic index. It does not pump up the insulin levels very high. It does not pump up the sugar levels very high. So those people age slower. But now we have an explanation that it's this copying machine that we have built into our bodies that accelerates with aging. And sleep, we're finding out, is critical for the repair mechanism, not only for the brain. They're finding out that there's a, actually the cerebral spinal fluid in our brain swishes around like a washing machine when we sleep, and it actually cleans up all the metabolic waste of the day. And during sleep, we have our intestinal tract and the lining regenerates itself. So the people who eat late at night, guess what? You put something in your stomach at midnight, midnight's night, you start making acids. And, and the other interesting thing is we naturally, between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., don't salivate as much. Otherwise, we would actually drown in our own saliva in our sleep. So that's why the body knows to shut down saliva production. You shouldn't be eating between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. so that you can sleep and you're not making saliva and you don't aspirate or choke and, and get fluid into your lungs. So there's a timing, a circadian rhythm that our body tends to follow. But that now, rejuvenation of the lining is very important, and alcohol disrupts that too. I, I am diabetic, so in theory, if you eat a piece of cake that has a lot of sugar in it, and it goes into your system, and if I take insulin, it gets rid of your sugar. But it goes well, away. It does, it it. In other words, if you normally have 100 taxi cabs to carry the sugar in, which are insulin is the taxi cab, when you take a shot of insulin, is like suddenly 20,000 taxi cabs appear to try to get that sugar into any available cell they can find. But eventually, you develop a resistance to it. And that's why diabetics eventually start getting what's called glycosylation of protein. The extra sugar starts sugarcoating your nerves. You get foot retinopathy. It starts sugarcoating the small blood vessels in the back of your eyes. So you get diabetic retinopathy and hemorrhages. And you get. So I should stay away from that cake. Stay away from the cake. Stay away from the cake. Now, if I eat a whole bunch of fruit that has fruit sugar, what happens then? It still goes up. It depends. Like watermelon, it goes very high. But if you eat blackberries and blueberries, it has a lower glycemic index, and it happens gradually. So it gives time for your body to process it instead of like the sudden burst of sugar, which we're not designed for. And they found that when you have these sudden bursts of sugar, more than 75 grams of sugar in one shot, your blood pressure goes up. All that sugar goes into the bloodstream to try to, and your blood prints up. The thing is, when you eat a lot of sugar, they found that your testosterone drops by 25% over a two-hour period when you have those big sugar boluses. Because as cavemen and cavewomen, when they look at skulls and they dig them up, they don't find cavities on uh, archaeological findings because they didn't have these processed sugars back then. They had a more you know natural diet. They died from other things like infectious diseases and trauma. But sugar turns out to be a lot more even than we ever thought it would be. And these new studies about aging are panning that whole situation out. So Mediterranean diet, fruits, vegetables, fiber, and uh, olive oil, those are the, 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 the secrets to longevity and when you eat, not just what you eat with intestine. Now, third choice. I eat pasta. My sugar stays high all night to about 3 or 4 in the morning. So that can't be good for you, can it? No, because pasta is basically a, a, a slow, it's like swallowing a slow-release medicine sugar pill, and it just slow releases it. You break it down, and all night it's shooting out the sugar. 
Just like when I wore the sugar monitor, the glucose monitor, I found out if I eat white rice, my blood sugar went out of control. Or when I ate crepes or when I had a delicious fettuccine Alfredo, it was up all night. So that's totally agreed. And that's why moderation, small portions. But like, for example, a runner, if they eat the pasta, but they burn it off, see calories in, calories out, they might take in a bowl of pasta, but they're also burning it off much more through their exercise and activity. So it's that fine balance between activity, exercise, and uh, the portion control. And that's why in France, for example, you look at the portions are very different than when you go into an American diner and get the portions that we have here can feed three people. I think I got it down now. And the differences between fruit sugar, 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 and carbohydrates like pasta. Anything else you want to tell our audience this Sunday morning? I mean, people want to live longer. Something about sleep. The longer you sleep, your body repairs itself. Yeah, absolutely. Sleeping is a very important repair mechanism and a hormonal balance mechanism. During sleep, something happens called autophagy, where we start eating up the dead, dying cells, and we rebuild the inner linings of the system, and we balance out all our hormones, and that helps us to uh, basically live longer and repair ourselves. And that's why during sleep also we're not eating, so our insulin levels are enough. So we're actually adding to our activity when we have good sleep. And the time you want to get the best sleep is 10 to 5 a.m. And those that's the period when you really want to get sleep. Avoid looking at your phone, keeping it near your head, at least one arm length away. You want to minimize any exposure to EMF. And you don't want to be looking at the blue light, which stimulates the brain to wake up when you want to try to get good sleep. But please, we encourage our audience to go see your doctor, have your annual physical, get your mammograms, your colonoscopies, and all your uh, lab work, and have a minimum an annual physical to stay healthy and keep listening to WABC for more health tips on staying alive and health span. Dr. Peter Mihalos, thank you for giving us an update. God bless you, and no more chocolate cake for dessert. With us today is Mario Economo, a banker in Zurich, London, New York, and he fills us in what the heck is going on in Europe. Mario, tell us what's going on in Europe and how are they faring? Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, it's actually a very warm summer in Europe as well. Uh, we are seeing very warm temperatures in the United Kingdom, across France, into Switzerland, and Greece is expecting a very long-lasting uh, uh, heat wave starting this weekend. So the heat's basically everywhere. Uh, let's just touch on a couple of subjects with respect to what's been going on in Europe. Many people in America, I'm sure, have seen the riots that have been happening in France and the various cities there as a result of a police shooting of an unarmed individual who was actually a teenager driving a car. The cities exploded. People basically, literally exploded. People basically started tearing everything down and burning the cities. Paris, uh, many of the other cities, Marseille, Lyon, city halls were burnt. It was actually a crazy situation, so much so that the government, the French government, actually sent in armored vehicles to quell the unrest. Things have quieted down a bit, but again, this points to much larger and deeper issues in French society that continue to simmer, and with any small catalyst, they actually explode on the streets. One thing we should discuss also is we should say that President Macron of France did ask the supermarkets in France to drop their prices by 10%, or they would have to face financial sanctions, 
And the good news is many of the supermarket chains agreed to do this. The bad news, unfortunately, is when the government gets involved at that level and it actually tells companies it's going to sanction them financially if they don't do something, that's also not necessarily a good thing. They continue to have extreme food inflation across the European Union. And the reason for this is because many of the farms, as we've discussed on your program, have actually closed. Uh, Many of the livestock, cattle, and other have been culled due to the high cost of feed, and therefore that's driven up prices of things such as dairy uh, products like milk and cheese. Uh, Eggs, of course, have been very expensive, and meat products in general have been very expensive. So uh, inflation continues uh, in Europe unabated, notwithstanding the consistent rise in interest rates in both the United Kingdom and the Eurozone as well. Are they going to continue? You know, the United States, uh, there's an economic war going on between the United States and, and Russia and Saudi Arabia over oil. I mean, Russia and Saudi Arabia want $90 oil. The United States wants $65 oil. And nobody really knows if Saudi says they're cutting it, but they're bluffing it most of the time. Have you heard anything? No, you're right. The Saudis and the Russians would like oil to be much higher than where it's at right now. And the Americans, of course, would like it to be much lower. America does have a say in this because America could turn on the spigots and could produce substantially larger quantities of oil and could literally flood the market and drive the price down. But that's a discussion that the American electorate needs to have with their government and with their uh, president. Um, Europe, for its part, continues to uh, import oil. We haven't seen dramatic increases in the price at the pump, and principally that's because oil overall is down. However, food inflation remains stubborn, and even though people had said when energy inflation drops, so will food inflation, the reality is it has not. And the reasons for that are uh, some profiteering by supermarket chains. that It's openly being discussed by people now. But I suspect also uh, there are some uh, longer-term lag periods between when oil uh, and energy inflation comes down and the actual cost of food, uh, food products comes down. I would like to touch on one other thing as well, and this has to do with Intel, the company that manufactures computer chips. They're actually going to be building two uh, chip plants in Germany. It's a $33 billion investment of which one-third the German state is actually going to cover. Uh, Intel also announced they're going to be building a four point, uh, roughly $4.5 billion uh, chip plant in Poland as well. And we now see that uh, U.S. companies are actually trying to actively get involved in the production of computer chips in Europe so that they don't over-rely on the supply chains uh, coming out of Taiwan. Is this a good thing? I think it is. Um, you're going to need computer chips to... Uh, Uh, be able to put into the various alternative energy, uh, wind and solar uh, plants that are going to be created in Europe. So I think this is a smart move that they're doing. But again, we see once again the German state actively participating in this investment. Roughly one-third of that investment is going to be funded by the German state. So once again, we see that the largest uh, uh, provider of funding to many companies today continue to be countries themselves. Um, And again, people need to decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, We also did see one other thing at the Paris Air Show, and this was Airbus, the company that manufactures airplanes, closed the biggest deal in plane history. Uh, And specifically, it sold 500 narrow-body jets uh, to an Indian budget carrier called Indigo. 
that is a huge sale, 500 planes, unheard of. Um, but again, India is today the world's most populous nation, and it's expecting a, an explosion in travel. Uh, but again, it begs the question, if in the European Union they're now saying they're going to essentially outlaw flights, which are two hours or less within the European Union, but people in India continue to fly unabated on flights which they could alternatively take by train like they're doing in Europe, then what is Europe actually accomplishing with respect to climate change if India is not going to participate as well? So you're essentially hurting the Europeans and the economy in Europe while you're allowing the Indian economy to develop and to grow aggressively. Anything new on nuclear energy with France or Germany? No, Germany did close its uh, nuclear uh, power plants, like it said it would. Uh, right now it's summertime. There's not that much demand for uh, energy, at least not as much as there is in the winter months. Uh, this will be a hot summer, it looks like, in Europe, so we'll have to see what the demand is going to be with respect to the air conditioners. But many countries in Europe have actually told uh, the, their uh, various city services, etc., that they're not allowed to actually lower the thermostats below a certain level. So that's going to actually not make it as cool as it used to be inside buildings. Um, let's touch on one last thing as well before we close today, and that has to do with Turkey and the upcoming, rather, I'm sorry, Turkey and the, and the upcoming NATO meeting uh, where Sweden's acceptance is to be discussed. And uh, up until today, Turkey continues to hold a strong line in its position against allowing Sweden to join the NATO alliance. It is continuing to essentially say that Sweden harbors terrorists, and unless the laws change and those terrorists are extradited from Sweden to to uh, Turkey, Turkey will hold its line and it will not allow Sweden in. The reality is nobody knows what's going to happen and it's going to come down literally to the actual meeting in the Baltic uh, states that's upcoming in the following week to see what Turkey is actually going to do with respect to Sweden. Well, Mario Konomu, thank you for the update and we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you. Enjoy your Sunday. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Dick Morris, one smart guy. He was uh, Bill Clinton's uh, advisor. He was Donald Trump's advisor and maybe still is. And uh, Dick Morris, there's so many things happening in the world, in Washington, which is your expertise. Where do you want to start today? Well, I think the, the uh, district court decision that enjoined, issued an injunction against anyone in the government from the FBI, the CIA, Department of Justice, Homeland Security, or even CDC, from peddling disinformation or misinformation, trying to discredit somebody who has the right of free speech, uh, it prevents them from doing that, makes it illegal. And it really means that the entire effort of the CDC, Center for Disease Control, to ban people from talking about saying that the vaccine was useless or saying that dangerous, uh, or the whole effort of the Trump people to say the election was rigged, and the efforts to suppress that by uh, by censoring it, by feeding counterinformation, that all of that, if it's done by the government, is a violation of the First Amendment. And that is a crucial decision. We've had the privatization of censorship. It used to be that the government just told everybody what to write. But now the government is doing it through the social media, through their buddies in big tech, yeah. through social media platforms, through all in, sorts of... In what uh, they- 
and federal judge. So everybody understands what we're talking about, Dick, because you're an expert. I've known uh, about this for for a while, but the rest of our audience doesn't know what we're talking about. A federal judge uh, last week ruled that uh, whether it's the White House or whether it's the uh, the agencies under the White House, like EPA, etc., that they can't use social media to uh, to have social media do their dirty work. Is that something like what, what, what we're talking about? Yeah, but be specific about the dirty work. They cannot say that that, that um, uh, John Katsimatidis is saying that the election was rigged and he's wrong. <laughs> and he's uh, and he's really uh, trying to overthrow the government, and he's really uh, doing this because he's uh, an agent trying trying to destroy democracy. That would be illegal. In other words, they're not permitted to to stop you from speaking your mind. They're not permitted to indict you and to prosecute you and to censor you simply for saying what is your opinion. Your speech is protected by the First Amendment. That is an earth-shaking decision. Agree. And uh, now uh, they're gonna. Uh, the government is gonna appeal it. I mean, yeah. uh, a federal judge is a federal judge, and it goes to a, a possibly appeals court, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. And yep. uh, we had a. A bad argument uh, in uh, uh, the studio on Thursday uh, where uh, one of our colleagues said that only 18% of the people in our country believe in what the Supreme Court is saying. What do you think the number is? And I'll tell you what everybody else uh, said. Well, it depends on what they're saying. Uh, if they're saying that... In general. Action, but, well, if they're saying... The, I mean... It's like the Yankees. If they win, I like them. If they don't, I don't. Um, when the Supreme Court says that affirmative action is racism, reverse race, reverse discrimination should be illegal, I believe what they're saying. Uh, and I think that, that the court, that there's a backlash against the court uh, because it's been very aggressive about promoting American value. And uh, I think that that is simply a left-wing reaction uh, to the judges enforcing the Constitution. Understood. Now, you're going to be on at noontime tomorrow, or to, or well, today at noontime. Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. To, today's Sunday, uh, noontime. What are you going to be talking about on your, on your show? Well, first I'll be talking about this court decision, which is enormous in its impact. The other thing I'll be talking about is something that most people don't even know about. <clears throat> when they indicted Trump, they cited the conversations he had with his lawyer. And Trump said, hey, wait a minute, those are privileged discussions. And the prosecutor said, no, they're not. There's a loophole where we can get those conversations and use those against you. And if that's allowed to stand up on appeal, it means that nobody is safe anywhere in the country in talking to their lawyer. And that's that is horrible. Hurt that poor is horrible. And black people and minorities. Well, let me tell Whatever everybody. You say to the lawyer, you might as well be putting in the newspaper. Let me, you know, you can listen on Dick Morris on, uh, on his show at 12 noon on WABCradio.com on 770 in the uh, uh, tri-state area in uh, New York, uh, greater uh, New York. And on your iPhone, make sure you have your app at 77 uh, WABC. Uh, am I correct? And, of, of yep. course, on your, on your uh, Alexa. Tell Alexa, play 77 WABC. Dick Morris, okay, I'll be looking forward to see. To, I will. I will be looking forward to hearing it. We got Larry Kudlow, the country's leading economist, to find out what's going on. Larry Kudlow, what's going on in our economy? What do you think uh, the Fed is going to do? You give us the report. So, 
I want to start with the lousy jobs report because it's being badly reported as usual. But you didn't get 209,000 jobs because there was 110,000 downward revision in the prior two months. So that's point number one. Actually, non-farm payrolls increased by only 99,000 jobs, which is the worst number in several years. Second point, private sector jobs which were reported as 149,000. After revisions, there was a 98,000 revision. Private sector jobs only increased 51,000. That's all. And I might add, of that, 60,000 of the total before revisions were government jobs. So what you have here, the very weak jobs report, even weaker for the private sector, which is obviously the engine of growth, the Bidens notwithstanding, uh, very weak manufacturing, very weak construction. And there's no reason for the Federal Reserve to raise rates. They will raise rates, John. They're going to raise rates until the last job is gone. Yeah, the until the end of do. our uh, country. Uh, and we, yeah. we we talked about it at dinner the other night. And, <laughs> and, and the fact is that uh, my opinion was they should drop at a point uh, because you got to stimulate our economy. And well, and if we can, if we can keep oil at sixty eight dollars because the Saudis and Russia are trying to raise it on us, well, I would I would leave the rates where they are. I okay. would leave the Fed target rate just where it is. Uh, I would, by the way, cut tax rates and cut regulations, but that ain't going to happen. That's never going to happen. Administration, but that's the best way for growth. But the point is, I can just see Jay Powell. It's like my wife tells me. He closes the kitchen lights. He says the kitchen is closed. He's going to be the last guy to turn the economic light down. And I don't know why he feels that he has to do this, but he feels he has to do this because that's what his brilliant economists are telling him. All I want to say is today was a very poor jobs report, and the president's trying to out there sell Bidenomics, but it's going to be a very tough sell. People know that. And incidentally, the inflation rate is still sticky, and uh, wages – did not go up enough to beat inflation. So that's another problem. Middle-class people, working folks are still going to be underwater and living standards. And Walmart made a big announcement after I made the announcement last Monday, Walmart, that the uh, food prices are not going down. Well, that's interesting. That's one reason why, look, the Fed should keep shrinking their balance sheet, but leave the interest rates alone. And leave the dollar strong. You know, a strong dollar will help you on lower oil prices and commodity prices and actually uh, food, raw material prices. So we need a strong dollar. But you can get a strong dollar without destroying the economy. In fact, if you just you don't want to destroy the economy. So we'll have to see about that. But uh, Bidenomics is not my cup of tea. I, 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 I agree 100 percent. I'd rather do you know, a cut no nomics. Yeah. No disrespect to the president. It's not personal, but it's just not my cup of tea. Uh, I'll call it Cat's Cudlow Economics. How's that? <laughs> well, Larry Cudlow, have a good weekend. I'm going to be listening you. to you. You're on in, uh, to between 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock on every Saturday on WABCradio.com, uh, on uh, Axe, uh, Alexa. Uh, just say play 77 WABC or on your iPhone on the app at 77 WABC. But, Larry, I'll be listening to you tomorrow. I want to find Thank out you, the rest of the story. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable. Every Sunday morning, we'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.